All right, so we're three weekends now from Easter, and here's what you need to know about Easter at Journey. Easter is for two things. One, Easter is about outreach. I mean, we never have an Easter service at our church where we don't center that Easter service about outreach and, and, and helping people in our community who don't know Jesus know Jesus yet. So I hope you're not planning to come alone. I hope you're thinking about family you can bring, friends you can bring, neighbors that you can bring, because for us, Easter is about outreach. As you leave today, we're actually going to put a couple business cards in your hands that allow you to very easily invite people to come and be a part of our services. And we need you to go online and register so that we don't turn anyone away. We know we're going to have three times as many people than we can handle. So if we don't really strategically have church on Friday, a couple times on Saturday and Sunday, we'll have people that literally will come and be turned away. So if you could register, that would be awesome. But think about who you're going to invite and begin inviting them already. Remember, statistics say that 80% of your friends who don't go to church anywhere want to go to church on Easter. They're just waiting on somebody to invite them because they don't want to go alone. Think about that. Eight out of 10 people who never go to church want to go to church on Easter, and they're hoping someone will invite them because they don't want to go alone. They don't know where to sit. They don't know what time to show up. They don't know how to dress. So they want somebody to give them an invitation. So if you have 10 friends who don't go to church, eight of them would come with you on Easter if you would just invite them. So Easter is about outreach. Invite and please register your attendance. But for us this month, Easter is also about, uh, also about understanding Jesus more deeply than you've ever understood him. So if you have your Bible, I want you to go to Mark chapter two today, take your notes out of your bulletin so you can follow along or fire up your Journey Church International app. We're in a brand new series called The Lamb. This is week two. And basically we're trying to understand who Jesus is in our lives spiritually by looking at the introduction his cousin John the Baptist gave him on the day he baptized him. Look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When we understand Jesus as the Lamb, we understand Jesus better and what he has done for us. Last week, we looked at Jesus as the Passover Lamb that can rescue us from death. This week, we're going to look at Jesus as the daily Lamb that offers forgiveness. Mark chapter 2 talks to us a little bit about forgiveness. Let's jump in the text at verse 1. We'll go through verse 12. It says a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he'd come home. That was his ministry home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it. And then they lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. Think about that question for a minute. Which one would be easier as a teacher trying to prove you're supernatural? To say to someone you're forgiven, and to really have no way for anyone to fact check you on that, or to say to him, get up and walk, and then he either does or does not. She said, which one's easier, to say to someone your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? The answer to that question we would think would say, it would be easier to say, He's forgiven because you can't really prove that unless you're God. But, but Jesus said in verse 10, but I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. 
He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. So I grew up about an hour and 15 minutes from Cincinnati, Ohio, kind of in southern Ohio, the woods of southern Ohio. And my best friend in elementary school's family had season tickets to the Cincinnati Reds baseball games. And probably five, eight, ten times a year, we would all get in a van together and we would go to Riverfront Stadium to watch the Cincinnati Reds play. Some of my fondest memories from childhood, we'd get there right as the gates open. We'd watch the Reds take batting practice. We'd watch whoever they were playing take batting practice. And I remember Jeff and I running all over the stadium, chasing foul balls, trying to get autographs. Some of my fondest memories of my childhood are going to Reds games with Jeff and Mike and Bryn, kind of my second family. Uh, And my favorite thing that they did at the Reds games, when they finally finished batting practice uh, and they got ready to get the field ready for the game, they would do a segment on the scoreboard called This Date in Baseball History. And a guy would get on and he would narrate, on this date in baseball history, Ty Cobb stole so many bases, on this date in baseball history, Babe Ruth hit three home runs. And he would say, on this very date in baseball history, here's something that happened. I became so fascinated with that that I still, kind of follow on this date in history stuff because I want to know what happened on March 11th that was significant all the way through history. Well, in Mark chapter 2, on this day in history, in Mark chapter 2, Jesus proved that he could forgive sins by proving that he had the power of God to heal. I don't know if you saw how he did this. But Jesus wanted the people to know not that not just that he said he could forgive sins, But he wanted them to know, I can forgive sins. Now, proving you can forgive sins is hard. They actually said a proper statement. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is like, you're right, but I have forgiven him. And let me prove that to you. Just so you know that I have the power to forgive sin, I'm going to make him walk because you need to see me as someone who is supernatural. He he tells the guy, get up and leave, not really to heal him, but more as an object lesson. The point of the story is I can forgive you, Jesus said, if you want it. On this day in history, Jesus proved that he could forgive sins by proving that he had the power of God to heal. And I sometimes wish we were still living on that date in history. Because as a pastor now of nearly 20 years, I believe at this point in the present, I believe today in the Christian church, specifically the American church, I believe it might be more difficult in Christianity today to prove to people that they need to be forgiven than it is to prove that Jesus can actually forgive sin. I mean, we live in such a sensitive world that says, don't tell anyone that they ever do anything wrong. I think it's actually harder today to prove people that they need to be forgiven than it is to prove that Jesus can forgive sin. Because we now have what they didn't have in Mark 2. We have four books on the life and ministry of Jesus. We know what he said. We know what he did. We know he was crucified. We know he raised from the dead. Like, we get the whole Easter thing. We get that Jesus forgives sin. What we need to try to understand much better is this key question. We know who Jesus is, but do we know enough about ourselves and our sin to have a proper understanding of who Jesus is to us? Like we understand who Jesus is spiritually, but do we know ourselves good enough? And do we know enough about our sin to have a proper understanding of our relationship with Jesus? Last week we were at Passover in Exodus chapter 12. And from Passover to God's presence in Old Testament scripture was about a 10 and a half month journey. You say, what do you mean from Passover to God's presence? Here's what I mean by that. Israel, remember, did not know who God was. It had been 400 years since God had spoken to any of them. 
And God showed up in the plagues. God's power showed off in the plagues. God's love showed a distinction in the plagues. And now all of a sudden, Israel has escaped from Egypt and they're going home to where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob lived. And every morning, they would get up and God would be there in a pillar of cloud. And every night, they'd go to bed and God would be with them in a pillar of fire. But listen to the very real fear of the people of Israel. Every day, they would get up and they would think, what if God's not here today? I mean, for 400 years, he hadn't been as far as they knew. So every day for 10 and a half months, they would go to bed thinking, what if God's not there in the morning? Maybe you went to bed or got up one day this week like that. Maybe you went to bed and just said, I can't feel God. Maybe you woke up and thought, I don't know if God's going to be there for me today. That was Israel. They literally went to bed every night hoping that God would be there when they got up in the morning. And at some point they sent Moses up a mountain to say, tell God, ask God to see if we could have some kind of visible sign that just reassures us that he's never going to leave us and he's never going to forsake us. Go ask God if he would do something to let us know that he's going to be here and he's always going to be here and tell him we'll play by his rules as long as he promises to always be with us. So on this 10 and a half month journey, they realize their need for God. They ask Moses to go ask God to come down. And God says, yeah, but here's what you need to understand. I am God, and in my holiness and perfection, it's hard to lead you sometimes. He actually told Moses every now and then, I look at the people of Israel, and I'd like to kill them. They're kind of a stubborn, stiff-necked people. But he said, I'll lead them, and I'll even be with them. But they're going to have to understand how to relate to me, and they're going to have to understand what sin and forgiveness are. See, Israel had been rescued from death at Passover. Ten and a half months before. But now they needed to be rescued from sin to live with God's presence among them. Israel said, I want to be able to go to bed and know that in the morning you'll still be here. God said, okay, I'll do that for you. But you need to know in order to associate with me, I have some standards that you need to keep to be my people. And if you will keep these standards, then we can be together. And if not, you're going to have to understand a little bit about sin and forgiveness. So God gave them a tabernacle. That would signify his presence among them and would symbolize what they needed to do for him to stay there. So we see this tabernacle, the, the, the courtyard made to meticulous standards. We see kind of a cutaway of the, the tent of meeting where they would go in and meet with God in the back, the Holy of Holies, kind of the inner sanctuary in front. We see at the very front of kind of the tabernacle courtyard, the altar of sacrifice. And then in the middle, we see what looks like a water fountain, really what looks like a sink. We see this bronze basin sitting in the middle of this courtyard. And in this picture, the priests are actually hanging out at it. You say, what is that? Look at Exodus 30, 17 through 21 on the screen. So what is that? The Lord said to Moses, make a bronze basin with its bronze stand for washing. Place it between the tent of meeting and the altar. Put water in it. Aaron and his sons, they would be the priests for generations to come. Aaron and his sons were to wash their hands and their feet with water from it. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting... They shall wash with water so they won't die. Also, whenever they approach the altar to minister by presenting a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash their hands and their feet so they will not die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants for generations to come. So look at the picture again. God says, here's what we're going to do. When you walk in, if you want to go left, you got to go here first and wash up. If you walk in and you want to go right, you got to go here first and you got to wash up. You have to start at the basin. One more thing you need to know about the basin. According to Leviticus, uh, according to Exodus 38, 8, here's what you need to know about the basin. It says they made the bronze basin and its bronze stand from, what's the word there? 
mirrors. It's very key you understand that. They made the bronze basin and its bronze stand from the mirrors of the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Say, why? The basins were made with reflective bronze and for reflective hearts. This basin was made with reflective bronze and for reflective hearts. Why? Because as a follower of Jesus, if you are not willing to stop and reflect on who God is, who you are, and how you have come together, you'll never really understand who Jesus is. You see, this basin was made with reflective bronze for reflective hearts because God said it's going to be important you would see for God at least twice a day. It's going to be important for you to stop and reflect on who I am, who you are, and how we have come together in the first place. This spiritually will build some foundations in your heart. So we look at Jesus as the Lamb of God. Last week as the Passover Lamb, as the first Lamb of God. This week as the daily Lamb of God, the daily sacrifice. Listen to what Numbers 28 verses 3 through 5 say about how the day started every day and ended every day at the tabernacle. God says, say to them, this is the food offering you're to present to the Lord. Two lambs, a year old without defect as a regular burnt offering each day. Offer one in the morning and the other at twilight. So when we understand the daily Lamb of God, when we understand how this basin played into it, We're going to understand the reason forgiveness was needed, and we're going to understand and reflect on what forgiveness demanded. Doing that, hopefully, will allow us to see Jesus in this bronze basin and allow allow us to see him in our lives in a way that will forever change us. So let's start with number one, the reason forgiveness was needed. Let's look at the reason forgiveness was needed, and let's start at the tabernacle again. Okay, we know, first thing in, we walk into the tabernacle, the first thing I'm supposed to do is to offer a sacrifice on the altar. I literally start the day with a sacrifice on the altar, I end the day with a sacrifice on the altar. But that means before I go to the altar, where do I have to go? Here. So I actually start my day as a priest, I start my day at the basin, and I end my day at the basin. It is the proverbial spiritual water cooler. It's where I start. It's where I finish. I can't do anything in and around the tabernacle until I've been here. And what we're going to learn is that every time I approach the basin, I see the answer to the question, why is forgiveness needed? Every time I approach the basin, I see it. Because remember, the basin was made of mirrors, and the basin would always reflect at least two things. So as as a priest, as I walk up to the basin, I see in the basin looking at it, the perfection and the holiness of God. One of my favorite pictures of all the Old Testament is a painting of two shepherds who are looking over the congregation of Israel in the time of the tabernacle and the pillar of fire sitting above this nation, the pillar of cloud sitting above this nation. We hear about it, but we never see it. And I'll never forget the first time I saw this picture thinking that would have been unbelievable. I mean, to live in a place that looked like that would have been unbelievable. And if that's what it looked like, you can imagine this big mirror In the middle of that, as you walk up to it, you would almost feel like you could feel the flames from the image coming at you. You would feel the perfection and the holiness of God. You would be overcome by the presence of God kind of reflecting back at you from this mirror. But as you stop looking at it and you begin to look in it, what do you look at when you look in the mirror? Anybody? You look at yourself. 
And what you would see as you looked at yourself is the sinfulness of humanity. You see, number two, the sinfulness of humanity. Say, wait a minute, Christian, are you calling me a sinner? Just to be very, very clear, yes, I am. But I want to tell you why I'm doing that. Because the reflection is a big deal. See, when you saw yourself in proximity to the presence of God, when you saw yourself in God in the same image, you would feel like there was a gap between you. And when we look at sin in scripture, the definition of the word sin is missing the mark. Sin is not a bad person. Sin is not an evil person. The word sin means missing the mark. It means there's a standard and you can't hit it or you didn't hit it. There's a mark that God says, this is what I want and you missed it. You say, well, what's God's mark? His name is Jesus. And God says, when you take time to reflect on who God is and who you are, and you wonder how those two can ever come together, it's Jesus. You say, Christian, how can you call me a sinner? You don't even know me. You're right, I don't know you, but I know Jesus. And if the standard is Jesus and anything short of Jesus is sin, I know a lot of really, really, really good people. A lot of really generous and fine men and women who serve and love well. I've never met anyone who's in their right mind who would say, I am as perfect as Jesus. And I would guess you haven't either. If you know anyone who knows anything about Jesus, I don't know one person that I've ever met who would say, I am as spiritual as Jesus. And if he is God's standard, and anything short of that is sin, then we have sin in our life. And what we need to understand is the way we see sin is directly related to how we see righteousness. And the reason I think it's difficult in the church today to help people understand they need forgiveness is because we've kind of changed the standard of righteousness from Jesus to us. Like we start with ourselves instead of God. And here's why we don't think we're in need of kind of daily continual forgiveness. Because many people, I would say most people, I would say me sometimes, Many people judge themselves against the worst of humanity rather than the best of Jesus. And when that's the reflection, we're not that bad, right? Like when we spiritually assess ourselves, we go look in the pool. We look in this sink that also is a mirror and we see our reflection and we watch so much news and we read so many articles that we see our reflection and next to it is like Kevin Spacey. And it's like, I'm not that bad. Or we see our reflection and we see Harvey Weinstein, right, in in the news today, and we think, I'm not that bad. We see our reflection next to the latest school shooter, and we think, I'm not only not that bad, I'm actually good. We see our reflection next to the latest terrorist attack. We go back in history and we look at us compared with Hitler, and we say, man, compared to the worst of the worst, I'm not bad. But God never asked that to be the comparison. God said, I want you to understand when you stop to reflect on me, I want you to see a picture of Jesus and I want you to see a picture of you. That's who you're supposed to become. And anything short of that, the Bible calls sin, you are in need of forgiveness. When you compare yourself against the best of Jesus, you're not him. I don't know anyone who said they can be him. As a matter of fact, look at Jesus' standard. He, he said it pretty bluntly in Matthew five forty eight. Here's the standard, be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. 
You say, Christian, that's impossible. That's right. That is impossible. And let me tell you why. Because when we read and study what the Bible says about sin, we read some interesting things. I'm going to try to give you a year of seminary in about five minutes broken down in the doctrine of sin, what I would just call sin sin 101. Here's something every Christian should know about sin. The doctrine of sin starts with, according to scripture, something that's known as original sin. This says the original sin, the first sin in the history of the world, Adam and Eve. The original sin has impacted you deeply and negatively. Original sin is the biblical truth that people are born broken spiritually. And it causes them to choose sin. Original sin says that you and I are born broken spiritually and it causes us to choose sin when it's presented to us. Romans 5, 12 through 14 at a pretty high level theologically says it this way. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, his name was Adam, and then death came through sin and this way death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin isn't charged against anyone's account where there is no law, which means you can't be guilty of something that's not a rule. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who didn't sin by breaking commands, as did Adam, who became a pattern of the one to come. Let me give it to you in layman's terms. What does that mean, original sin? Here's the proof that Paul is laying out in Romans. Paul says, according to Genesis 2, death was the consequence of sin. Nobody would die unless they had sin in their spirit. God birthed people with perfect, immortal, everlasting life. The only reason anyone died was because of sin, Paul says. And then Paul said everyone died. Like, that's not even a biblical fact. That's just a historical fact. Everyone died. So here's what Paul surmises. Everyone must carry this sin gene, this sin trait this sin condition in them. If you only die because of sin and everyone dies, everyone must be impacted by sin. Paul goes even one step further to make a great point. Paul says, even without rules to break, the fact that you die says you've got sin living in your DNA. You're born broken spiritually because of what Adam did. He produced a whole race of people that are born broken spiritually and they will choose sin when given the option. Two kinds of sins that we can commit. One, sins of commission. Say, what's sins of commission? What's that mean? It's sins you actively choose to commit. You would say you commit these sins. You say, what kind of sins? Satan targets in the life of humanity the exact same thing he targeted with Adam and Eve is the same thing he targeted with Jesus. It's the same thing he targeted you with. What kind of sins do we commit? Things lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. What's the lust of the flesh? It's what feels good for me. God says, I want you to live your life this way, but you say, this feels so good. So I'm going to choose to sin in this area. I know what God wants me to do, but I'm going to choose to sin in this area because I really like the way it makes me feel. The lust of the eyes is what looks good to me. God says, here's how I want you to live your life. Here's what I want you to pursue. Here's what's really important to me. And then you see something else and you think, ah, but that looks so good. I know this is what God has said, so I choose to commit sin. I'm going to do what looks good to me instead. Or maybe it's the pride of life. This is what makes me look good to others. And it gives me security. This is, this is your identity. God says, I want you to place all your identity in Jesus and identify as a follower of mine. That should be your identity. You say, yeah, I really like that. But I get more likes on my social media when I identify with this. 
when I post this. This is, I know God, you've told me to trust in you, but if I work really hard, I have a lot of money and I can trust in this. These are sins I commit. God says do things one way and we do things another way because of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Those are sins of commission, sins you actively choose to commit. But then there are sins of omission. This is why we fall so so short of Jesus. Sins of omission is the good you choose not to do. Jesus had a younger brother named James. James was a pastor in the early church. He wrote a book and he said this about sins of omission. If anyone knows the good they ought to do and they don't do it, that's sin. When you know what Jesus would do, but you don't do it, that's sin. When you know what Jesus would never do and you do that, that is sin. You can actually commit sins of commission and omission at the exact same time. When you do something to somebody you're not supposed to do, that's sin. And then when God says, you need to apologize, and you say, nope, that's sin too. It's sinning by doing nothing. It is committing something you're not supposed to do and then omitting the good you're supposed to do. So I cheat somebody on something, sin of commission, and God says, you need to repay that. And you say, nope, sin of omission. When you look at it that way, you say, wait a minute. So every day I'm supposed to not only do everything Jesus would do, Every day, I'm never supposed to do what Jesus wouldn't do. Yes. You say, there's no way. I can't do that. You're right. Because you are infected with original sin. You're born broken spiritually. And we just can't meet the standard of Jesus. And if the standard of Jesus, then we realize, like we see in the basin, that there is a need for forgiveness. That is is the reason forgiveness was needed. Every day the priest would walk in, they would see the presence of God dwelling among them, and then they would see themselves and think, man, I blew it again last night. I blew up at my wife. I blew up at my kids. I didn't spend time in prayer last night. I saw someone in need, and I didn't help them. On and on and on. Anything Jesus would do that you didn't or they didn't. They would see the presence of God. They would see themselves, and they would think, you know what? God, I need your cleansing again today before I even go to work serving you. And they would rinse at the basin. What is the basin? It allows us to see the importance of seeing and admitting our sin every time we approach Jesus. The basin allows us to see the importance of seeing in ourselves, because we see us compared with Jesus, our sin, and admitting that before we begin to go to work worshiping God. That's what the basin does. That's the reason that forgiveness is needed. But we also see, number two, the reflection of what forgiveness demanded. So let's go to work for a minute. We step into the tabernacle and and we get ready to go to work and God says, start at the mirror. So we start at the mirror and we think, man, compared to the presence of God, I just really fall short. So we, so God, I need you to forgive me before I can go to work. And then I would go to work. And what do I do at work? I head to the altar. I sacrifice the morning lamb. And before I can go into the tabernacle now to approach God's presence, I have to go back. And remember, you always see at least two things in the basin, right? As I'm walking back towards it, I still see the glory and the presence of God hovering above Israel. But now I get back to this and what do I see in the basin? Again, I see the presence of sin because I see, I see me. I look in the basin and I see myself, but this time I look different. Because I don't only see the sinfulness of humanity, now I see on myself the payment required to forgive that sinfulness. Right? Can you see it? I've gone from the basin to the sacrifice, 
Now I come back to the basin so I can go to work. I see myself. But what's all over me now? Blood. But it's not my blood. I, I see that to even serve God, I've got to recognize there's this gap between me and God that demands forgiveness. So then I go and I offer that lamb which signifies forgiveness. But then I go before I can go to work, God says, no, I want you to know the cost of forgiveness. Like, don't just take forgiveness and run. I need you to stop and reflect on the cost of forgiveness. Because you don't just see yourself. You see yourself covered in the blood of the substitute that was sacrificed for your forgiveness. And a heaviness sets in that I think is part heaviness, but that eventually leads to gratitude. A few years ago, a a songwriter in Texas came out with a worship song called I Am a Friend of God. His name was Israel Houghton. It was a great little worship song from John chapter 15 where Jesus told his disciples, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. Great song, but I think it created a poor theology. Because I think a lot of American Christians thought Jesus is my very best friend. And my primary relationship with Jesus is he's my friend. No, Jesus is your friend. But your primary relationship with Jesus is that he's your savior. Like we do not get forgiven because Jesus is our friend. We get forgiven because Jesus was sacrificed as a substitute for us, right? Like as we look in the basin and we reflect at the cost of forgiveness, we see that Jesus wasn't just a good guy. Jesus was a dead guy. And that's the only reason we can be forgiven. We can't as Christians look into the mirror of God's relationship with us and see Jesus with his arm around us like we're buddies and he forgives us because he just doesn't care. No, at that point, we see the cost of forgiveness and we see ourselves with the blood of Jesus offered as a sacrifice and a substitute for us so that we can be forgiven. And a different level of spiritual understanding begins to set into our hearts. I get sick of saying sin is not a big, I I get sick of hearing people say sin is not a big deal. You know, one of the token statements says, God is just love, just love everyone. I agree, God is love. But if sin wasn't a big deal, why would God kill his son? Like if sin wasn't a big deal, why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't he just love everyone? It was because according to scripture, the punishment of sin was still death. Sin is still a bad thing. Sin is still something that separates you from God. And sin is something that still has to be punished by death. Israel just got to choose a substitute. So the law could be fulfilled and they could still have access to God. Just like the Passover. God said, all the firstborn are going to die unless you don't want them to. Then you can choose a substitute. Now God is saying, everyone who has sin in their life is going to die unless you don't want to. Then you can choose a substitute. Leviticus 4 says it this way. If any member of the community sins even unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, when they realize their guilt and the sin they've committed becomes known, they can bring as their offering for the sin they committed a female goat without defect in this way. The priest will make atonement for them and they're going to be forgiven. You say, why is that important? Because the people of Israel invited God into their world. And they said, we'd be more comfortable if we knew you were going to be here every day. And God said, that's great. But in order to do that, you have to understand what separates us. And you have to put your trust in a substitute who will one day give his life. Remember, the whole purpose of the tabernacle was to be a visible sign to Israel that God's power and presence were with them. The whole purpose of the tabernacle was every morning so they could wake up and think, okay, God hasn't left us yet. 
But God said, you're going to have to understand our relationship in order for me to be here. I'll be here. However, a holy and perfect God in the midst of unholy and imperfect people demands forgiveness. So the priests every day are going to start with forgiveness. And then they're going to go to work and they're going to get back to forgiveness. The first thing they'll do every day is ask for forgiveness. And the last thing they'll do before they go home is realize again, it's the grace of God in forgiveness that allows them to keep doing their job. I mean, when we reflect on what forgiveness demanded, the death of this substitute, it helps us see Jesus differently. Hopefully it helps you appreciate Jesus differently. It certainly changes the story in Mark chapter two. Remember the question, Mark chapter two? Which is easier, to forgive sin or to heal someone? Remember the question? Which is easier, forgive sin or heal someone? The Jews who knew this process, which is easier, forgive someone or heal someone? They would have all said, heal someone. Because to forgive someone, like something has to die. Which is easier, heal someone or forgive someone? All the Jews listening that day would have said, heal someone. Because nobody can forgive sin unless something dies. So when Jesus said, I'm going to heal him, but not to heal him, but to prove to you that I'm going to forgive you, it left him wondering, what could this guy be up to? That he'd be willing to forgive knowing that something has to die. See, that is the story of Jesus. That is the story of Easter. And if Jesus is God's standard, and anything else demands death, then either we die or a substitute does on our behalf that we ask God to take so that we can live with him and have his presence in our life and his power in our life. Well, if that is the story of Jesus, that should make you see Jesus in a little different way. You see, the thought of this series is that Jesus is the lamb of God. Jesus is represented in all of this. Right? Jesus, number one, is the reflection of what a life must look like to be in relationship with God. Jesus is the one who lived a sin, sinless human life, perfectly fulfilling every one of God's laws at every point in his life. It was Jesus who became the sacrifice offered to a God willing to forgive. If we'd understand the seriousness and consequences of our sin, it's Jesus who said he's the living water that cleanses us and removes the stain of sin from our lives so that we can live within the presence of a holy God. And to follow Jesus, well, that's to recognize your sinfulness, to see you and Jesus and to realize I'm not him, so I'm gonna need him to be my sacrifice and substitute. It's to recognize your sinfulness. It's to recognize Jesus' sacrifice. It's to recognize God's grace in offering us a substitute. You see, it's so important if you're a follower of Jesus to know the reason that forgiveness is needed and to reflect on what it demands. And it's so important if you're not a Christian to understand the reason for forgiveness and to reflect upon what it demands, but also to reflect upon the fact that it's offered. And it's our job as a church, my job as one of our pastors, to help you know this so you can really know Jesus. You see, a church that won't preach on sin is a church that can't celebrate grace. A church that won't say sin is wrong can't say Jesus is right. A church that doesn't say sin is bad can't say Jesus is great. So you have to have both to have either. And we want you to know who Jesus is. We want you to live every day at the sink in the mirror of cleansing. 
we want you to live here. Because there are two truths that are equally true today that maybe you came in here and you didn't know. One is this. Your sin is worse than you ever thought. You need to know that truth. In comparison to Jesus, your sin is worse than you ever thought. But because of Jesus, the forgiveness offered is bigger than you could ever imagine. I mean, your sin is worse than you ever thought it was. But the forgiveness that God offers is so much bigger than you knew that it was. And literally everything you've done in your life that Jesus wouldn't do, everything you didn't do in your life that Jesus would do, all those areas that you fell short, God said, I'll forgive all that if you'll live at the basin, if you'll live reflecting on who God is, who you are, and realizing that it's only Jesus that brings those things together. Would you bow your heads as we think on that in prayer this morning?